Psalm 67. And if you will, as they did in the days of the exile's return to Jerusalem, stand as we read God's word together. Psalm 67, and we're going to read the entire psalm together. Psalm 67, verse 1, God be gracious to us and bless us, cause his face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth, Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its produce. God, our God, blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Let's pray together. Father, we pause because it is such a weighty thing to read your word, to preach your word. And Lord, such an unworthy vessel to do so. But Lord, I ask this morning as we gather that your word would be clearly heard. The last thing we need is to just hear a message about a man's opinions. Lord, we need to hear the word of God clearly. So I pray that you would do so by your spirit, that you might anoint the preaching of your word and do with it exceedingly beyond all that we could even ask or imagine, such that Christ might be glorified here in this church and among the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. When we take a look at Psalm 67, 1-7, for those of you who like to take notes on the sermon, you can write down three parts of the psalm itself that I think are present. The first is a petition. The second is an exhortation. And the third is a declaration. The petition is, the psalmist saying, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. He's petitioning the Lord for blessing. Then there's an exhortation in which the psalmist is actually exhorting God to work for the sake of his own name among the nations. He says, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let the peoples praise you. In other words, in what I'm doing now, I'm exhorting you that you would act on behalf of your name such that the peoples would praise you. And then he ends with a declaration which really is the answer to the petition. God shall bless us or God blesses us and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Now, what I'm going to do here this morning is I'm going to try to get at the heart of the psalm by asking three questions. And really, this is going to deal with the psalm in reverse order. But the questions are, what do the nations need? And that's where we'll spend the majority of our time. But then, secondly, why do the nations need? And then third, when will the nations have? What do the nations need? Why do the nations need, and when will the nations have? I think if I were to poll you this morning and I said, what do the nations need, you would say rightly, salvation. They need to be saved. They need to be brought into a covenant relationship with God, and I, I would absolutely agree with that. 
Because Psalm 67, 2 says the following, that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. And yet when I think that, when I try to enter into the psalmist's mind and get into his head when he's thinking all nations, I can't help but run backwards to the Abrahamic covenant. If you'll flip with me, just keep your finger in Psalm 67 too. I want us to go back to Genesis chapter 17 to maybe try to get into the head of the psalmist and see what's he thinking when he talks about all nations. Because you'll remember that the idea of all nations is used over and over again in Genesis 17, which we call the Abrahamic covenant. Now You might remember that in Genesis chapter 12, God called this guy named Abram for no good reason except that he wanted to, to leave the land where he was and go to a new land where God would do something that would be astounding. He gave him a promise that he was going to form a people through this guy named Abram and that this people was going to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. So we have a promise to this pagan named Abram that he was going to leave his land, go to a new land, and that God was through him going to form a people and this people would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Now listen to Genesis 17 too. God now making a covenant with Abram and even changing his name. Genesis 17, 2, and then verse 7. He says, I will make a covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Now catch what God is saying here to Abraham. He's saying, I'm going to make from you a people. And this people is going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth by giving them true knowledge of God and inviting them into covenant relationship with me such that there will be a people from all the nations of the earth following the one true God. And what are the terms of the covenant that God will make with this people from among all the nations? He says... I will be God to you and your descendants after you. Now, interestingly enough, you'll find that precise language in another covenant at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. It's called the New Covenant. I don't want you to go there yet, but in a minute we're going to go over to Jeremiah 31 to read this same language in what's called the New Covenant. But you find that covenant at the end of the Old Testament Because God's intention in the Abrahamic covenant was never fulfilled this side of Christ. See, God's intention from the beginning was to have a people that would express His glory to all of the globe. Think about this in Adam. God forms Adam and Eve in His own image, right? In the likeness of God, they were made. And what does He give them as their mandate? Be fruitful and multiply and do what? Fill the earth and subdue it. Show dominion over the creation. Why? Because they're image bearers. And what, what is an image? An image is something that reflects. They were meant to be mirrors of the glory of God all over the earth. 
And the dominion that they expressed was to reflect the dominion that God has over the entire universe. They were meant to take God's glory and go global. Well, how did that go? Did Adam and Eve do really well with their commission to take God's glory global? This means yes, this means no. No, they didn't. Why? Because instead of wanting to reflect the glory of God, they wanted to be God in place of God. I talk to people a lot when I'm sharing the gospel with them, and I think there's an, an incredibly truncated view of sin in our culture. Don't you think so? Sin is nothing more than what you do. And so people, when they say, well, what did Adam and Eve do wrong in the garden? Well, they disobeyed. Well, that's true. They disobeyed. But what's the root of their disobedience? The root of their disobedience is Genesis 3.5. When the serpent says, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What caused them, what provoked them to disobey was the desire to be their own God. To turn around the mirror as it was and fall in love with themselves as opposed to being a mirror to reflect God's glory. They failed. So then you transition over to Genesis chapter 6 and now you have God who is at the point of destroying the entire earth. He laments that he ever even made man. But he doesn't destroy the whole earth. He saves one family. Which family did he save? Help me out. Now y'all got to talk to me a little bit more. Help me out this morning. Y'all need some more coffee when you throw a donut at you or something? Okay. Noah's family, right? And when Noah gets off the ark, he makes a sacrifice to the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 9, you find the exact same language to Noah that God had given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Noah, I'm calling you to reflect the glory of God and go global. How did Noah do with that? He do real well? Nope. What do you do first? Plant a garden, get drunk, show yourself in your nakedness. Canaan gets cursed because of Ham. So you end up primeval history at the end of Genesis chapter 11 and what's going on. They've come together to build a tower to reach heaven through their own effort to make a name for themselves as opposed to going global with God's glory for the sake of his name. It's the total opposite of what God had called them to do. So suddenly, God calls this man named Abram, you find at the end of Genesis chapter 11, and he says, I'm going to make a people through you, and what's the point? You're going to bless all the families of the earth by taking my glory global and inviting them to, be the, in, inviting them to come into the covenant people of God by trusting in the Messiah of God. How'd they do with that? <laughs> God treated Adam like a son. He failed. God treated Noah like a son who would take his glory global. He failed. He treated Israel like a son. Exodus 4.22, he says, Say to Pharaoh, that's my son. Israel is my son. And how did Israel do with taking God's glory and going global? Pick me up in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, where we've got the Mosaic Covenant being given. And he says, If you will obey my word, you will be to me a kingdom of priests. You will mediate the true knowledge of God and the presence of God to all the nations of the earth if you will obey me. Did they obey him? No, they wanted to be their own gods too. Right? Instead of obeying them, we have everybody 20 and over is going to die in the wilderness in that generation. Then you have another generation that enters into the promised land. They don't conquer the way that God told them to. And they raise up another generation after them, the judges period. They don't even know what God did for Israel. Can you imagine generations removed from the exodus and they don't even know what God did for Israel? Oh, it's going to be better though, right, when we have a king. Let's have a king. 
And then what ends up happening, eight of 39 kings in the northern and southern kingdoms are considered just before the Lord. And the greatest king that Israel ever knew ran his raping rake over Bathsheba. So you get to the end of the Old Testament period, and where are the people? They're in exile just like they were in Genesis chapter 3, and they've not fulfilled the purpose for which God raised them up to take God's glory and go global. So he says, I treated Adam like a son. I treated Noah like a son. I treated Israel like a son. None of them took my glory and went global. None of them fulfilled the purpose of the covenant. I'll do it myself. So everybody now go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. This is what's called the new covenant. Jeremiah 31, 33, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. That's Abrahamic covenant language. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And I think the psalmist looks at the Abrahamic covenant and he says, Oh God, let, let the Abrahamic covenant and your desire that people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation enter into covenant relationship with you, let that be true. Let your way be made known on the earth and you can hear Jesus, who is the covenant representative of God, the faithful son that was sent saying, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, I'm the son who will be faithful to the terms of the covenant and I will have a people who will take God's glory and go global. It's only fulfilled in him. I think the psalmist, when he looks at the nations, he's thinking, oh God, let your purpose for which you gave the Abrahamic covenant, let it come true, and it's only fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true descendant of Abraham. By the way, you and I have been brought in as Gentiles, because I'm not looking at any ethnic Jews this morning, I don't think. You and I have been brought in by the true descendant of Abraham, Jesus Christ, and made true Israel. Amen? You are... And I am the people of God because we are in Christ, the true descendant of Abraham. Read Galatians 3. What do the nations need? They need to be brought into the covenant people of God by the covenant-keeping Son of God, the way of God, Jesus Christ. But I want to tell you that it doesn't even, it doesn't even stop there. This passage, I know this is going to be really, everybody's going to be excited about this. You're going to take this home with you. This passage is, is called a chiasm. Mm. I'm loving that. This, it's a Hebrew poetry term. It's, it's chiasm. It means that the, the structure of the psalm looks like an hourglass. Okay, If I had a board up here, I'd draw it out. But what it essentially means is that there are parts that reflect each other throughout the psalm. So I, I want to help you out with this chiastic structure. Everybody go back to the psalm. And I want to show this to you. There's an A part 1 and an A part 2. There's a B part 1 and a B part 2. And then there's a C part, which is really sort of the climax of the psalm. So here's the A part 1 and 2. Verse 1, God be gracious to us and bless us. A part 2, the earth has yielded its produce. God our God blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. It's a reflection. Here's the B part that reflects. B1, B2. 
Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 5. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. They reflect. The psalm is pointing to the center, which is where the real climax is, where he says, let the nations be glad, tell me what yours says, and sing for what? Joy. For you will judge the peoples with uprightness and guide the nations on the earth. What do the nations need? Yes, salvation being brought into the covenant people of God by the covenant-keeping Son of God. But why will they be saved? Why do they need to be saved? Not merely to escape punishment, but so that they would find their soul's satisfaction in God forever. Let them sing for joy. You're not surprised to know that this idea of being brought into relationship, covenant relationship with God so that we might know Him, it's not isolated to Psalm 67. Listen to this in 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that, purpose clause, He might bring us to God. He suffered... The just for unjust, that he might bring us to God. We quoted John 17, 3 up here. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true and living God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. That's what eternal life is. It's knowing God. Psalm 16, 11. This verse God has used in my life over and over and over again to remind me, what's the presence of God like? What is He inviting me into? Psalm 16, 11, In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. You, you didn't just get saved in order to escape punishment. Praise God that the wrath of God is not upon us because it was laid upon His Son. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. But Him saving us from wrath is so that we might know God and have eternal joy in Him. And I don't know, I don't know, but I am afraid. I am afraid that oftentimes the gospel that is preached is merely a gospel that tells people you can escape punishment, but it doesn't make you fall in love with Jesus at all. You can use Jesus as some sort of ticket I think there are tons of people who have made a decision, they've prayed a prayer, they've done the thing, and they think, I've escaped punishment, but they have no desire to be with Jesus at all. And I'm afraid that that's often the gospel that's being preached. People that desire to go to a heaven that does not exist, where God is not, because their desire is not to be with God. That's why Jonathan Edwards said the following. He said, God is the, is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of Him is our proper end and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. I want to ask yourself this morning, do you believe this? Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children or the company of any or all earthly friends. God is better. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, 
but God is the ocean. Is your heart saying this morning, I want him more than I want anything else in the world. I was saved to know him. What do the nations need? They need to be included in the covenant people of God through the covenant-keeping Son of God who is the way of God so that they might have the joy of God knowing the person of God, Jesus Christ. Because look what he says in Psalm 67.4. Listen to this. I, I love these, help, these, these little help words in the text that give you both purpose and then cause. He says, Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy for... You shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on the earth. Why is it that they're going to sing for joy? Because they're being brought into relationship with God for you. I want you to imagine that somebody dropped you out of a plane. And maybe you have been there, I don't know. But somebody dropped you out of a plane in the Nuba Mountains. In Sudan and South Sudan. Two-thirds of the Nuba Mountains are in South Sudan, one-third in Sudan. South Sudan's not been a nation for that long, and so there's been conflict over the Nuba Mountains for years and years and years, um, most recently under Omar al-Bashir, who was the dictator of Sudan. But just imagine that somebody drops you off there, and you begin to tell people, I want to tell you about a judge who will judge righteously. There's not a single thing in their background to substantiate the claim that any judge would ever judge righteously because none of their judges ever have. All they've ever known is pillaging, war, rape, their entire lives, hundreds of Nubian tribes. And suppose they were to ask you, how do you know that this judge will judge righteously? There's an answer to that question. And the answer is because this is the judge who was judged for you. John 3.18 says, He who believes in the Son is not condemned. It's the word crino. It means judged. He who believes in the Son is not judged. He who does not believe in the Son has been judged already, for he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. Why is it that those who believe in the Son are not judged? It's not because their judgment just disappeared. It's because it was laid on Him. And imagine the audacity of the message that the judge of all the earth, John 5, who deserves nothing, who, who should give to his creation, who have stomped his glory, nothing else but condemnation, has fallen under his own judgment for us. That is a ridiculous message to the eyes of the world. The judge has been judged for you. What do the nations need? They need to be included in the covenant people of God through faith in the covenant-keeping Son of God so that they might experience the joy of God by knowing the person of God. That's what they need. That's, that's what they need. And yet you know that as we've just said before, there are large swaths of the globe today where there is no knowledge of God. There's no salvation. There's no understanding of the gospel. You don't hear any of the songs like you see in Psalm 67. 
We said this verse in the Sunday School Hour. I just want to use it again to remind us of the reality. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. For that which is known about God is evident within them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. They're, they're without excuse. Nobody has an excuse. Nobody. Like, let that fall on you for a second. Nobody, not a single person can say, I'm innocent. Jesus didn't come to a neutral world. He came to a world that was already condemned in sin. He's the only way. What do the nations need? Infinite joy in the person of God provided by the way of God and help, help us, Lord, with the urgency of God. But the, the question is, why do they need? So what do they need, but why do they need? Well, I don't think that any one of us, I don't think that any one of us, for all the problems that we have, personally or in our own land or in our own churches, I don't think that any one of us is willing to say, God has not blessed us. It's interesting that in the psalm itself, we talked about this chiastic structure. He's pleading for blessing in verse 1, and he's saying, you've answered the plea in verses 6 and 7. God be merciful to us and bless us, cause his face to shine upon us. And then he says, God blesses us. God blesses us that all the ends of the earth may fear him. Is it any debatable fact this morning that God has blessed us? He has given us the gospel and the means to get it all over the world. Amen? Is anybody debating that? Did you know 50% of the world population lives on less than $2.50 a day? I'm just putting this in perspective for us. I'm not meaning to get, bring anybody under false guilt. I'm just putting this in perspective for us. 50% of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. 80% of the world lives on less than $10 a day. There's 193 geopolitical nations in the world. America's gross domestic product represents over 30% of the GDP, or 30% of the GDP. I mean, we can't debate the fact that God has blessed us. But what's the most important word in the entire psalm? What does the psalm hinge upon? It hinges upon the word in verse 2, that. Listen to what he says. God be gracious to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Selah, that. If we've been brought into the covenant people of God, it's because there's a covenant purpose of God. And the purpose for which we have been made the people of God is that we now, in Christ, might be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Jesus is the fulfillment of the new covenant. And in Christ, he is making us into what he's always wanted his people to be. Reflections of his glory on a global scale. He's wanting us to bless all the families of the earth by proclaiming this gospel. And yet somewhere along the way, don't you think that maybe we've missed the purpose? We've missed the that. God be gracious to us and bless us, cause his face to shine upon us, and God pours out his blessing on his covenant people such that they might bless all the families of the earth by taking this gospel and proclaiming it in all the nations, and we've missed the purpose. And we are guilty. I can say I'm guilty. 
I don't have to talk. I, I'm guilty. And I, I, I am so struck, if you just read through the Gospel of Luke, I am struck by passages like Luke 12, where Jesus talks about this rich fool who says, I'm going gangbusters in my work. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to build bigger barns and I'm going to store all my stuff there and I'm going to say to my soul, eat, drink, and be merry. And God comes to him that night and says, you're a fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And to whom will belong all your stuff? And Jesus says, that's what it's like for somebody who is not rich towards God. By contrast, you have Jesus saying things like this. Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying, I'm giving you blessing. Don't miss the purpose. And don't, don't waste it storing up treasure in this world store up treasure in heaven why do the nations need because the covenant people of god have often missed the purpose of god that the blessing of god is so that his blessing might come to the nations in the proclamation of the gospel among all nations last question when will the nations have what's going to make the difference for trinity reformed baptist church What's going to make the difference for any church that wants to be faithful as the called out covenant people of God? What's going to make the difference? It's not going to be, okay, well, I'm going to be super legalistic about this. No. I don't, when I've read through Psalm 67 before, I've asked myself the question, why does the psalmist care? Why does he care about the praise of God among the nations? Why should I care? Why should you care? I've found this quote by C.S. Lewis to be of immense help in answering that question. C.S. Lewis, you might remember, was a self-proclaimed atheist, became a Christian. But uh, he said about God in the Psalms, he said he sounded like an old woman wanting compliments before he was converted. Now afterwards, this is what he wrote in a bit of a commentary on the Psalms. See if you think this is true. C.S. Lewis was a very sharp thinker, as you know. The most obvious fact about praise, says Lewis, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars, except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Now, listen to this. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended upon my absurdly denying to us, as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. The point is, if you value something, you will naturally praise to others about that thing. Because when you do that, your joy grows. That's the point. 
If you have a restaurant you really like, you'll probably keep that to yourself, right? Nope. You're going to tell somebody else next time I go, man, you got to try this restaurant, right? Or big game coming up. People come over to watch the game because it's a whole lot more fun to watch it together. Movies are funnier. Experiences are greater. Something happens when joy is shared. And I think the psalmist is saying here, I want the nations to be brought into the praise of God because my joy in God is so full, it will only grow when they join me in it. Why don't we care about the nation's praise? Because our joy in God is so low. That's the problem. It's probably not an information issue. It's that we don't delight in Jesus enough to care about their praise. So what will make the difference? What will make the difference for in my heart and in your heart, in our church's hearts, is that our hearts become set aflame for the glory of Christ. That we delight in Him so deeply that we are driven to care about the nation's praise. Yes, because it's urgent. But ultimately, ultimately, because Jesus is worthy of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And one day, He will have His covenant people. Lord, let us be a part of bringing them in. I'm going to pray for us and give it over to brother. Father, thank you for your word to us. Lord, remind us of what we need, what the nations need. Lord, help us not to miss your purpose in being the covenant people of God. And as we plead to you, Lord, would we always do it with your end in mind. May we delight in Christ so deeply that our hearts will be drawn to the nations being included in your praise. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.